Hey everybody, we are going to take the time right now to ask for your help in filling out a survey for one of our OBGYN resident colleagues over at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's right. So Abby Bernard is a PGY2 there, and she's performing a survey study currently looking at how virtual fellowship interviews have affected the application and interview process for everybody involved in OBGYN fellowship applications. You're eligible to participate if you've recently applied to fellowship, if you're a current fellow, or you're a faculty member within a subspecialty and may have participated in interviews. So if you're able to, please go ahead and go on to her link to fill out the survey. That link is redcap.link slash virtual interview. So once again, that's redcap.link slash virtual interview. Faye, great news. I think we have a new $10 patron. Yeah, this is really awesome. I can't believe all the support that we have been having for the podcast now, even three years into it. So we wanted to give a shout out to Carol Lennon, who just became a new $10 patron. Thank you so much. If you'd like a shout out on the show or some cool swag, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Coffee. You too can get the shout out. guys welcome back this is Faye this is Nick and this is Creogs over, over coffee. coffee so today we're going to be talking about a huge topic which is peripartum cardiomyopathy so Nick what are our learning objectives for today so yeah we'll first describe the signs and symptoms of peripartum cardiomyopathy Next, we'll work to understand the etiology of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And finally, we'll discuss the management and treatment of this very, very scary condition, truthfully. There's a little bit of reading that we'll have references and links to on the website because it'll definitely help with your understanding beyond what we can do in this podcast. But let's give it a shot, Faye. What is peripartum sure. cardiomyopathy? So unfortunately, there's not a uniform definition of peripartum cardiomyopathy, but what I'm going to try and attempt to do is to give you an overview of what several papers have tried to define. So peripartum cardiomyopathy is a potentially life-threatening pregnancy-associated disease that typically arises in the peripartum period and is marked by left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure. It's not a precisely defined entity because timing can vary. So, for example, the U.S. National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in the 1990s defined it as heart failure that develops in the last month of pregnancy or up to five months postpartum because they wanted to exclude patients that had pre-existing cardiomyopathies. But we know that there are patients who otherwise meet criteria for peripartum cardiomyopathy who could develop it at less than 36 weeks. So in terms of timing, there is some variation there. In terms of left ventricular systolic dysfunction, that's defined as when there is a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 45% or fractional shortening of less than 30% or both. So Nick, how common is peripartum cardiomyopathy? Because we're devoting a whole episode to it. Do you feel like you see this all the time? Yeah, you know, I really haven't seen too many cases in person myself. No, but me neither. Looking at the incidence numbers of one in a thousand to one in four thousand live births, that's actually more than I would think um, right. based off of what I had seen thus far. Um, but 
kind of hold your breath because recent studies have demonstrated that the incidence of peripartum cardiomyopathy is actually on the rise. Um, and there are a number of proposed reasons for that. You know, things such as increasing maternal age, preeclampsia, multiple gestation, all of those are risk factors independently for postpartum cardiomyopathy um, and sort of characterize populations in general. Um, increasing rates of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity may also be contributing to this. Um, and then finally, too, you know, as you mentioned, Faye, there's just so much trouble with the definition of postpartum cardiomyopathy. This may just be kind of a case of we're recognizing it more often now that it's sort of out there and we're hearing about it and talking about it a bit. Moving on from kind of where things are in epidemiology, let's talk signs and symptoms of peripartum cardiomyopathy. How do we recognize this? Totally. Like we talked about, PPCM is associated with heart failure. And so you're going to be getting symptoms that are associated with heart failure. And that usually um, is associated with, you know, feelings of fatigue, shortness of breath, increased extremity swelling, and sometimes even arrhythmias from overstretching of the heart. So essentially, you know, you're looking at a patient and they could look like they're um, fluid overloaded to a certain extent. Signs of heart, heart failure include things like evidence of left-sided congestion. So for example, um, pulmonary edema. So on exam, you'll find things like pulmonary rolls. And there can also be evidence of right-sided congestion. So that would be like an increased uh, JVP um, and lower extremity edema. Other things that you would find in your studies would be things like an elevated BNP. And, you know, I, I wanted to put in a, a plug for one of the papers that came out in the Green Journal in 2019 um, from Dr. Malhame, because we had a lot of doubt in residency when people would come in with an elevated BNP. We would ask, like, well, is it just because they had preeclampsia or did, is it just because they were pregnant that they have this elevated BNP? And that was a good study to show that, you know, in pregnancy, patients who do not have cardiomyopathy will still have normal BNPs or significantly lower BNP compared to people who do actually have cardiomyopathy. You can also get an EKG, which may show some nonspecific changes like tachycardia or a pattern consistent with a left bundle branch block, a chest x-ray, which may show some pulmonary edema and an enlarged cardiac silhouette, and then, of course, an echocardiogram that could show left ventricular dilation of variable degrees, left ventricular systolic dysfunction, right ventricular and biatrial enlargement, and, of course, you know those definition signs where you have the ejection fraction of less than 45%. So those would be fine or things that patients complain about if they were to have um, PPCM. But Nick, what is the cause of peripartum cardiomyopathy? Do we know? I wish we could say that we did, Faye, but the answer is really no, we don't. There was an older hypothesis that's sort of interesting that suggested that Peripartum cardiomyopathy may be triggered by viral myocarditis that is more common in pregnant women. Um, but study that looked at endomyocardial biopsies in patients with postpartum cardiomyopathy and other types of cardiomyopathies, basically the same proportion of biopsies in the PPCM group and the non-PPCM group demonstrated viral genome detected in about 30% of samples. Um, and so it doesn't seem that pregnant women may be more predisposed to a viral myocarditis that sets them up for PPCM. The current operating hypothesis is something known as the two-hit model, where there is initially a vascular insult that is a function of late pregnancy in the early postpartum period, some antivascular or hormonal effect. And then that vascular insult 
leads to cardiomyopathy in women who have an underlying predisposition to that cardiomyopathy. There's also a question potentially of genetic predispositions to PPCM. And then it's also worth noting too that there's a high prevalence of preeclampsia in women with PPCM. And maybe this is suggestive of a possible shared pathophysiology, you know, maybe some type of placental angiogenic factor issue, um, things that truthfully from the basic science perspective that go way over my head. The bottom line is that we still don't really know what causes PPCM. Um, we do have some idea, though, about how to manage it, Faye. Yeah, so I, I first wanted to talk about prognosis for PPCM before we talk about you know complications in management because this is still a disease process that is very scary and does carry with it a pretty high mortality rate. 50 to 80% of women with PPCM will recover left ventricular ejection fraction to a normal range, meaning greater than 50%. And most of that re recovery will occur within the first six months. And, you know, that is an improvement um, compared to the early 1970s, where the mortality rate of PPCM is actually 30 to 50%. However, we still have to be very wary of this disease process because the left ventricular size and ejection fraction at the time of diagnosis is what is most strongly predictive of left ventricular recovery. And in patients who have an ejection fraction of less than 30% or an end diastolic diameter of greater than six centimeters, you know, which is like quite a bit of dilation, this is indicative of a decreased likelihood of left ventricular recovery and increased risk of needing mechanical support, a transplant, or even death. The other thing that I want to highlight here is that 25% of patients will develop chronic heart failure, and the mortality rate is still somewhere between 6 to 10% in the United States, depending on what studies you look at, um, and also depending on how long you follow the woman out for from their diagnosis. So definitely something that is still very scary, still carries a high mortality rate, and definitely needs to be treated very seriously. So now that we've talked about that, Nick, talk to me a little bit about, you know, some of the complications and then, you know, how we treat these complications of PPCM. You know, one study of PPCM or women with PPCM found that two and a half percent of women about had cardiogenic shock. About one and a half percent of them needed mechanical circulatory support. And about half a percent of women underwent cardiac transplantation as a result of their diagnosis. So again, there is a pretty reasonable burden of significant disease resulting in shock and ICU management. Venous thromboembolism, though, is one of the most common severe complications of PPCM, affecting about 6.6% of women that have PPCM. The mechanism for this is thought to be underlying intracardiac thrombosis due to cardiac dilation and hypocontractility, leading to blood stasis um, and then embolization into the lungs. Pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, so again, we're already going to be predisposed to emboli, um, and then when you have a hypocontractile dilated heart, um, there's definitely more significant risk of that. Arrhythmias can also contribute to morbidity and mortality, um, primarily due to death from ventricular tachycardia. Again, 2.1% of women with PPCM had a cardiac arrest, and just under 3% underwent implantation of a cardiac device as a result of significant arrhythmia. Lots of complications that can occur as a result of PPCM, mostly cardiovascular and some pulmonary. Faye, let's talk next about treatment, though, because we want to avoid these complications. So what do we need to do to best treat these women? 
the numbers overall of peripartum cardiomyopathy is still small. So management is generally extrapolated from other forms of heart failure because they're very few studies actually perform specifically for women with PPCM. Definitely, you know, prior to treatment, consulting maternal fetal medicine, talking to anesthesia co colleagues, and also talking with our cardiology colleagues to create a multidisciplinary care team is definitely going to lead to the best results. If patients are still pregnant, there should be a discussion of delivery timing. Usually these patients don't need to have a cesarean section, however, certain hemodynamic shifts that can occur at, in the second stage of labor may be mitigated by a slow epidural and potentially assisted second stage of labor. So that's kind of one, one aspect to talk about. Then I think, you know, there's always talking about what happens if the patient has already delivered or um, what do we do once the patient has delivered. So usually, just like for other types of cardiomyopathy, um, supportive care is what is going to be your best bet. This type of care is going to be directed towards managing heart failure symptoms. So the first part is going to be diuresis because a lot of these women are going to present like they're in fluid overload um, because they're not going to have a completely working left heart, and that is going to lead to fluid being backed up into the lungs or you know even into the uh, systemic circulation. The one caution here, definitely talking to your cardiology colleagues about this, is not to go overboard because, of course, if you're having hypocontractility and you're taking off too much fluid, that can also lead to hypotension. If the hemodynamics permit, um, beta blockers should be used with the preference of beta-1 selective uh, beta blockers. So for example, trying to use something like metoprolol. In someone who's still pregnant, remember that like beta-2 blockers can prompt uterine activity um, and cause uterine contractions, so it's better to avoid these types of um, medications. The beta blockers should be used for cardioprotective measures. And then, you know, ACE inhibitors and ARBs are contraindicated in pregnancy, as we know, but once the patient has delivered, they can be used in the postpartum period. There should be consideration of anticoagulation in PPCM, especially if the left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 30% for the reason that Nick had discussed before, where you were talking about having an increased risk for VTEs. If there is an arrhythmia that may require acute or chronic administration of antiarrhythmic drugs, those should be given. We won't talk a ton about cardiac-assisted devices because, you know, I feel like as an OBGYN, that's not really my area of expertise and would definitely want to leave that to the cardiologist. But um, these devices can be used if there's severe depression of the left ventricular function or if you ex expect to have rapid deterioration of your patient's clinical status. And then finally, in terms of counseling patients about their next pregnancy, there is an increased risk of developing PPCM again. And because of the higher risk of mortality with PPCM, we do recommend that patients need to really uh, discuss with maternal fetal medicine whether or not they should get pregnant again. Reasons why they should avoid a future pregnancy especially is if the ejection fat fraction fails to improve because mortality can increase up to 50% if that occurs. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to um, the end of our episode on peripartum cardiomyopathy. So let's go ahead and sum up. All right. We started out with the definition and what is peripartum cardiomyopathy, and we defined it again as a potentially life-threatening pregnancy-associated disease that typically arises peripartum and is marked by left ventricular dysfunction and heart failure, um, though we also noted the challenges with the definition of peripartum cardiomyopathy and including folks in this definition. Epidemiology is ranging from 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 4,000 live births. 
with increasing maternal age, preeclampsia, multiple gestation, hypertension, diabetes, and obesity as potential risk factors. Signs and symptoms are those associated with heart failure, again, fatigue, shortness of breath, extremity swelling, sometimes presenting with arrhythmia, um, and then evidence of left-sided congestion with pulmonary rails, right-sided congestion with JVP and edema, elevated BNP, and there may be EKG and chest X-ray abnormalities. ECHO demonstrates left ventricular systolic dysfunction um, and left ventricular dilation of variable degrees primarily. Unfortunately, we still don't know what causes PPCM. Um, our current hypothesis is that there's a two-hit model. So for example, there is some type of vascular insult, um, especially in women with some type of underlying predisposition. And that predisposition, we don't really know what it is. It could have to do with some genetic predisposition or potentially women who have preeclampsia or other um, insults during pregnancy. Prognosis of PPCM actually is fairly reasonable. 50 to 80% of women who have it recover to normal range left ventricular function, with most recovery occurring within the first six months. But left ventricular size and the ejection fraction at the time of diagnosis most strongly predicts recovery of the left ventricle. 25% of patients develop chronic heart failure, and mortality is still 6 to 10% in the United States, depending on how long you follow women out for. Complications include things like cardiogenic shock, uh, need for mechanical circulatory support, um, and ca even cardiac transplantation. Other complications include things like venous thromboembolism in the setting of intracardiac thrombosis due to dilatation and hypocontractility within the heart itself, and also, of course, pregnancy being a hypercoagulable state. Um, and finally, PPCM can lead to arrhythmias, which can contribute to morbidity and mortality. Lastly, treatment of PPCM is extrapolated from prior studies of heart failure, um, and so multidisciplinary management is a must, including MFM anesthesia and cardiology. Delivery timing should always be discussed. Hemodynamic shifts can be mitigated by epidural and assisted second stage, and PPCM does not mean that a cesarean is needed to deliver the baby. Supportive measures are the usual management for heart failure symptoms, including judicious use of diuresis, avoiding hypotension, beta blockers used with preference of beta-1 selective beta blockers such as metoprolol, postpartum ACE inhibitors and ARBs can be used. Um, anticoagulation should be considered for patients with an ejection fraction of less than 30%, um, and then obviously if arrhythmias are present, use antiarrhythmics. For one last final point on future pregnancy, Pregnancy should be avoided in the future if the ejection fraction fails to improve postpartum, as mortality may be up to 50% in a subsequent pregnancy in that scenario. All right, Faye, I think that sums it up. Um, so once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go onto iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any of your other podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoffee1, on Facebook or Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or on our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. You can send us some love and we'll send you some swag. We have show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a correction, a question, or any future episode ideas, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Faye, I don't know about you, but 
out here in Washington, we're starting to see COVID on the rise yet again. Same here, we're getting a lot more COVID patients back on the wards over here, Nick. I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to really like find and get back into what exactly I needed to do with a COVID patient after not seeing patients for so long with it. Yeah. And the good thing is, you know, a lot of these resources are on the OBG Project's website and you can go in and go and find all the information that you need about COVID-19 outside of pregnancy and in pregnancy. Yeah, they've got a button on their website that has topics ranging from FAQs for gynecologic care, treatment guidelines for COVID-19 if you've been reassigned outside and been placed into an ICU, as well as key research um, that's coming out, new stuff every single day. Exactly. And the best way to get all of this information is if you subscribe to OBG First, which is their subscription service, you can get all of this information plus more and also create your own library of all the resources that you want from their website. If you're a chief resident, you can get OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, see how you can get OBG First and all these nice COVID-19 updates for absolutely free. And Faye, I think too, just as part of today's episode, we've got a little bit of an exciting announcement. As we have moved to different places, um, we've been settling in as fellows, but I think, you know, six months into our fellowship, we've gotten a little bit more comfortable. I found out where all the bathrooms are. Um, (laughs) So we are happy to announce that we are going to be going back to weekly episodes just like we had before. We hope that this will be great for you guys in time for Creog season for the residents out there. 